Welcome to an episode of the podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York, with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design, and architecture. Robert Hammond is, together with Joshua David, the co-founder of the Friends of the High Line, the entity that maintains, operates, and creates program for the High Line in partnership with NYC Department of Parks and Recreation. In this interview, Robert tells a thriller-like story with the many twists and turns that arose in protecting, preserving, and reinventing the former Southern Viaduct section of the New York Central Railroad into one of the most successful public attractions in New York City. So, Robert, uh, very welcome to the podcast Art Insiders New York. Great. Thanks for having me here. Thank you. I read this wonderful book that you have written, Highline, The Inside Story of New York City's Park in the Sky. And I found that it, it reads like a thriller. You know, there's <laughs> things happening all the time. You make one step forward and then there's a twist to the left and to the right. And then you have another obstacle and then you go back to, you know, step number one. Um, so I was wondering, when, when does the movie come out? <laughs> I don't know. I, um, you know, it's, it's, I feel like that book was um, the story of sort of when Josh and I started in 99 to when we first opened the se first section in 2009. So there will be a sequel then, uh, part maybe, one and maybe. part two. <laughs> you met uh, Joshua David at a community meeting. Yeah. Now, so how was that? Was that, did you have the feeling that this was sort of destiny or was it just a <laughs> casual thing that you just showed up there and you, you talked? Yeah, I mean, it, it, um, I, I lived, I moved to New York in 93 and I lived in the West Village because it was cheap. I got three months free rent in yeah. my apartment, which is sort of a funny thing now, uh, that idea in the West Village. Um, and then in the summer of 99, I read an article that said the Highline was going to be demolished. Yeah. And I had, uh, you know, seen it from the street and thought it was cool, didn't think that much of it. But then I thought, oh, wow, maybe there must be a group trying to preserve it and I can help out or, yeah. you know, help raise money or something. And asked around, no one was doing anything. And then I heard it was on the agenda for a community board meeting. Never been to a community board meeting. Yeah. Uh, actually came back. I was on, on vacation out at Fire Island. Came back early to attend this community board meeting. And I was sitting next to a guy that I didn't know. Yeah. And at the end of the meeting, everyone was either in favor of demolishing it or just didn't care, except this other guy sitting next to me. So we exchanged business cards. And okay. I say, I'm really busy. You do it. And he said, I'm busy. You do it. <laughs> and... Um, and that was Joshua David. And so that was the beginning of this. So have you thought about that time, looking back at it? If you had taken another subway or if you had gotten delayed, you hadn't been there, do you think you would still be here today? No. Somehow it seems like you have a great chemistry together. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think either one of us would have done it. One would have tried to do it or mm -hmm. would have been able to do it if it wasn't if we hadn't done it together. And, and the other thing I just want to say, and I'll go, I'll go back to your answer, is like, I mean, Josh and I, and I get a lot of credit for this. It was also, I feel like my biggest skill is finding a lot of smart people to come together yeah. to help us get this done. And, and you know, what was interesting um, was that Josh, neither Josh nor I had any experience in this. People assume we're architects or designers. Yeah. My background, I was a history major. I, at the time, I was working... Uh, doing marketing for some internet startups. Mm -hmm. I was a part-time artist. Yeah. 
uh, no experience in architecture, design, or planning. And Joshua was a travel writer, so he, he didn't have any experience. Um, and when we first started talking to people about it, that was one of the big things they said. We were like, well, one, what do you want to do with it? And yeah. we said, we don't know. Because we didn't have, we, we, weren't, we weren't designers, we weren't architects, we didn't have a plan. Yeah. And that we didn't have any relevant experience, we didn't have any money to build it, yeah. and um, we really didn't have a coherent plan in the beginning. Yeah. But all of those things proved to be actually sort of the secrets of success. And, um, and Josh was, because he was a travel writer, he was a great writer, had a lot of contacts in the press. Mm -hmm. So that was some of the things he started working. He also had done an article about all the new galleries uh, in the neighborhood. And that's where he first saw the, he lived in the neighborhood, but he first sort of noticed the High Line when he was doing this article. So he went back to all these galleries for support yeah, of, of this project. And my background was in marketing. So, I mean, one of the first things I did was get Paula Scheer to design our logo. Yeah. We started a Yahoo e-group, which was a very early listserv because yeah. I was working in what was then called the dot-com yeah. you know, era. Uh, so we were, you know, using um, email in a different way that most preservation groups weren't doing. And just to keep in mind, I mean, it was Google was a year old when we started. Yeah. So you know, it was a long. It took us ten years from when we first met to when we opened the first section of the. So island. that is then twenty years ago then. Basically. Yeah. It was, it, this is our twenty-year anniversary exactly. I see. I see. You are very modest and candid about your role in this whole project. Uh, in the times that we live in, that's very refreshing, I yeah. think. And there are some other founders, too. You mentioned that you almost had a third founder, Joel. Well, Joel Sternfeld was a photographer. So when we went up there, we took pictures, again, yeah. with the cameras. Yeah. There were no camera phones then. Yeah. And just took pictures, and they weren't that good. It looked like a whole bunch of weeds growing on a railroad track. Yeah. That You find that all over the country. Yeah. And so I wanted, to, but this feeling up there was really magical. So someone suggested this photographer, Joel Sternfeld, I didn't know him, looked him up in literally the white pages, yeah. called him up, got him to come up there. He said, wow, don't let anyone up here for a year <laughs> and I'll give you incredible photos. It turns out he was a very famous artist and photographer. Yeah. Um, and he photographed the Highline for a year and came back with these incredible photos yeah. that really captured sort of the mystery, the beauty, and 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 those photos um, we learned was our best sales technique. At, at meetings, we learned to talk less and show more of these photos. Yeah. Because what it did is people looked at the photo and they would imagine different things. So some mm. people imagined wow, that's a great site for architecture. Some people said, wow, this is um, native grasses. Wow, yeah. this is rail history. Wow, this is um, about planning. This yeah. is a space for mobility. I mean, yeah. you know, and so it, it created a really large group of supporters um, that enabled us in the early days. Because the other thing that's hard to remember is, um, and for hard people to understand, there was a lot, lot of opposition. Yeah, You know, no one was for this thing in the beginning. Yeah. And um, so it, it wasn't that we just had to come up with a good idea. We had to fight, you know, Mayor Giuliani, 
Um, the mayor at the time wanted to tear it down. And now, of course, he's the biggest villain in the world, so it's easy to imagine. But then he was a, you know, relatively popular yeah. mayor among some people, never me. But that is true. Um, and you know, he signed a demolition order two days before he left office. And the two mayors before him, and I never like to defend Giuliani, but um, the two mayors before him were also in favor of demolition. Yeah. Um, the the property owners underneath it, all the developers in the neighborhood wanted to tear it down. So also a big irony because the people that have benefited the most are developers and property owners under it. But at the time, they thought it was an eyesore. They thought we would never be successful, these two guys with yeah. no money, no experience. And they just wanted to tear it down. So, And even people in the community felt like it was an eyesore. It was rusty. Mm -hmm. They thought it was dangerous underneath. Um, what I learned about this thing, though, was that they, um, he had signed the demolition order, the, one of the last things that Giuliani did before he left office. Yeah, because he knew we um, uh, mayor-elect Bloomberg, who was yeah. going to replace Giuliani, had already said, so it had announced his support for the project. Yeah. All of the candidates running for mayor, um, we'd gotten them to support the project. So yeah. he knew Bloomberg was going to support it. So he signed the demolition order literally days before he left, binding the new administration to demolition. Yeah, because you can't change that. It's mentioned. very hard to change once uh, you, you can't reverse policy yeah. um, like that. And so it took, and, and the Bloomberg administration was supportive, but then you know, 9-11 had happened, they had a lot of other much bigger priorities. Yeah. Um, and it took us a while to really um, convince them this really made sense. And then when they got on board, the Bloomberg administration really got on board. Yeah. And um, this never would have happened without that administration, without that kind of vision and that kind of risk taking. And, and it really became, I think, a great example of a public-private par partnership. Yeah. This, mm -hmm private group of citizens um, and community members and the mayor and the whole, you know, all different levels of city administration yeah. that made it happen. And, and it seems an important thing here, I think you alluded to that before, is that, that you, it wasn't like that you had a very clear vision that you tried to convince everybody else to jump in on. It was more like an organic, because then you had this idea ideas competition and you sort of worked, you know, opening up a big, uh, you know, uh, perspective on things and yeah. then slowly narrowing it down to what this could be. Yeah. Now, you did a feasibility study, though, that was very important. Yeah. Could you help me to, to, on the one hand side, tell me what was the feasibility? What did it say in terms of number of visitors or what it would cost to do this and where we are today with... Uh, yeah. With, uh, yeah. So, um, again, you know, 9-11 played a real really critical factor in this and uh, you know I, I, I watched the towers fall and you know selfishly one of my thoughts was well there goes the High Line because yeah. who's gonna care about this yeah. project that's you know most people thought was just this fantasy when the city's falling apart and everyone's fleeing the city and and I think that was you know one of the issues for Bloomberg and so we did. We hired a guy named John Alshuler, who had a firm called has a firm called HRNA, to do an economic feasibility study. And what it set out to prove is that the benefits to the city in new property taxes over 20 years would be far greater than the costs of building it. Mm -hmm. And we said, look, we'll raise 
if, if the city supports it, we'll raise a majority of the money to build it. The city okay. doesn't even have to pay for all of it. So the study came back and said that it would create, um, that it would cost about um, $50 million to build and that it would create $250 million in incremental tax revenues. Over 20 years? Over 20 years. Okay. Now, when we did that study, I never really <laughs> believed it. You know, <laughs> I was like, maybe it'll create $100 million. Yeah. Um, we just updated that study and, and the city, not in the total property um, development that's happened, but the city will see about $1.5 billion in new tax revenues um, over 20 years. And right now, the city is getting about $60 million every year in incremental that goes to pay for firefighter school and everything wow. else that the, the city does. Now, um, we also got the cost wrong. Mm -hmm. It cost about $250 million. Okay. The city put in ultimately um, the city and, and the federal government put in about $100 million and we raised the rest okay. um, privately. But the other thing, just going back to 9-11, um, is that one of the things the Bloomberg administration, a priority for them, was not just economic development, but, but how does the city sort of rebuild? How does the city get even better? Yeah. And it was, the, they, they had this, in some kind of this window to do projects that maybe wouldn't have happened, mm -hmm. you know, otherwise. Mm -hmm. in, in in this effort to, you know, how how does again how, how does how does New York keep getting better? Yeah. And and that was the spirit. And and they and and again, the Highline was a huge risk mm -hmm. for the city. Again, it's paid off, so it looks like wow, that was an easy decision, but it was a lot of money to put into a project that most people thought wouldn't work. They had to fight the development community to get it done. They let us pick a design team yeah. that was uh, led by the two firms that we picked had never built really any substantial buildings or parks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now they've gone on now to build have. incredible things, yeah. but both the landscape architect and the architectural firm yeah. didn't have a big body of work. I yeah. mean, they were more known for their conceptual sort of out there yeah. um, you know, thoughts exactly, and, and creative ideas rather than very practical solutions. So we had a unlikely project, a sort of what was then a risky design team, and we didn't have the money to build it. Yeah. And, and then we didn't have the experience of operating it because yeah. we said, well, look, we're going to operate it for you, the city, so the city doesn't have to pay to operate it. Yeah, yeah. So that was a lot of risks uh, to take. Yeah. Um, but can you explain to me then, so, so there were property owners here, and you have this high line here, and you wanted to keep it, but these property owners, they wanted to get rid of it because they wanted to, uh, of course, build the property there. So you have yeah. this formula that you, you develop where you, where you use the rights of developing above yeah. uh, the high line that could be sort of transacted to other properties around can you explain yeah. how, how yes. that works? So it's a, it's a, it's a, it was a very complicated um, real estate problem, and that's one of the reasons it had not already been demolished. Mm -hmm. Because the railroad, CSX, owned the structure itself and a 20-foot easement above the High Line. Okay. But they didn't own the property rights underneath the High Line, mm -hmm. and they didn't own the air rights above it, above 20 feet above the rail bed. Mm -hmm. so, 
property owners, there were 22 property owners that owned property along. The railroad owned no property. Uh -huh. So there were 22 property owners that owned property underneath the highline. They could build the building beneath it. They could build a building around it. Yeah. But it was very impractical. You know, it has tons of columns, so it was very hard to build under it. And it was expensive to build around it, and everyone just assumed it would be demolished anyway. Yeah. So it created this strip through the neighborhood where there was really no development um, because everybody was just waiting for it to be demolished. And the reason it wasn't demolished is um, it was going to be very expensive to demolish it. Yeah. Um, you know, it had lead paint, it had asbestos, <laughs> um, it had to be remediated, and they had to remove this giant steel structure. And so the railroad didn't want to pay for it to be demolished. So they were telling the property owners, you pay for it to be demolished, and we'll demolish it. <laughs> the, railroad, the property owners were saying, you demolish it. And so um, that's where we came in. And, and with the Bloomberg administration, proposed a transfer of development rights. Okay. So it allows, normally in New York, you can only transfer your development rights to your neighbor. If your neighbor doesn't need those rights, they're not worth, they're worthless. So one of the most famous example of this is Grand Central. Yeah. So the two ways Grand Central was saved, it was declared a landmark, they also created transfer of development rights. So the railroad that owned Grand Central at the time, New York Central, could transfer the, those development rights anywhere around it. That's why there are a whole bunch of tall buildings around Grand Central. And that's what was proposed in this area is um, it, it enabled them to um, create what was an impediment to them developing their site to developing anywhere around it. Now, one of the other reasons the property owners were fighting it um, and Giuliani wanted to tear it down is they had just recently rezoned Sixth Avenue. Mm -hmm. And you know now when you drive up Sixth Avenue, there are these huge tall buildings with these giant bases that yeah. are like block to block. The High Line prevented that size of a building. Yeah. Um, of having this corridor of buildings. And so, um, which I think has been a good thing. I mean, the, and one of the other things that the Rizzoni did is it kept the building heights very relatively low in the, in the middle of the High Line, where it's next to the historic district, and the taller buildings are to the north and south. The other thing it did is it included provisions for affordable housing, and right now I think about 900 units have been of affordable housing have been created. Mm -hmm. um, I can come back to uh, some of the biggest, or, I don't know, if mistakes or or things we could have done differently if we yeah. had known. Because um, that's great that all those units have been created, but a lot more could have been created if we had known how successful it was going to become. Yeah. This was uh, somewhat inspired by uh, Promenade Planté in Paris, even though it's not the same. It's not the same thing, but it was something that was an inspiration way back. So, what made you pick uh, the architects and and, and the uh, and the firm that did all the plantings? And so yeah. On? Well, just going back to the, the Paris. So, we went to Paris and looked at the Promenade Planté. Yeah. And we realized that is not what we wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was nice. It was a nice Parisian park. It has a bench and a bush and a chair. I mean, it's, you know, stare up to it. Yeah. But it wasn't special. And yeah. I think Josh and I felt, and uh, the people that were supporting us, if we're going to win this battle, we don't want to just put a bench up there and put a bed of tulips. Yeah. We wanted to do something really special. And the other thing that the Joel Sternfeld pictures did is people were really 
fell in love with this natural wildscape that yeah. had grown up there. It so, is incredible. But we knew we had to remove it all, to remove the lead paint, remove the asbestos, remove all, you know, and, and so you couldn't just leave it as it was. You had to create something new. So first we did an ideas competition in 2003, because even with the support of the Bloomberg administration, we didn't have any money to build it. Mm. We were still fighting lawsuits mm. uh, from the property owners. They were suing us and the city. And no one even knew what the High Line was. If you said the High Line, yeah. no one knew what it was. And even if you lived next to it, you had no idea. I would say, oh, you know the thing that you walk under that's dark? And they'd say, oh yeah, the thing where pigeons shit on you? <laughs> I'd say, yes, that's the High Line. Um, so we did this ideas competition with the idea of just getting, spreading the word about it. And in the brief, um, we said the, the ideas didn't have to be realistic. So, and, and we got a lot of criticism for that because even I remember um, some of the elected officials said, well, no one thinks this is a real thing anyway, and you're gonna get a whole bunch of crazy ideas, no one's ever gonna believe it. And we did, the winner was, you know, one of them was a mile long lap pool. Yeah. The other one was a, a urban roller coaster. <laughs> Another one was creating, uh, it, they just weren't, you would, couldn't build, they were wonderful ideas, but yeah. you weren't, they weren't realistic. Yeah. And, and so people would say, well, why this isn't going to help your cause, but what it did is it really put the highlight on the map. Yeah. And we had entries from it was the largest um, ideas competition um, at, at, at the at the time, and we had entries from all over the world, and it really put it sort of on the map yeah. of people. And we had an exhibition at Grand Central, sort of to say, okay, this is not just a local project. This is you know a citywide mm -hmm. um, project. And and then a year later, we had made some progress. Um, uh, the city council under Speaker Gifford Miller had, had allocated our first allocation of money, $15 million towards construction. Yeah. So we felt comfortable enough to do a design competition. And we had four finalists, mm -hmm. uh, Zaha Hadid, mm -hmm. uh, Michael Van Valkenburg, a great, great landscape architect, Stephen Hall, um, a great architect who actually his first project in 1990 was about building housing on the High Line, and his his offices overlooked the High Line. He sort of had the deepest history, yeah. and then um, the team of led by a landscape architect, James Corner, field operation, the architects Dillers Cavidio and Renfro, and the planting designer Pete Uldoff. Mm -hmm. um, and James Corner, uh, we there were no gardens we could visit that he designed. <laughs> He had written several books. He was a, he was head of the landscape school at Penn. At Penn. Yeah. Dillers Cafidio uh, had built this blur building that was a basically building made of fog that was open for a month. They had had a solo show at the Whitney. Um, you know about barely any. It was called like aberrant architecture, and it was basically sort of set designs and art that they had done. Yeah. Um, Pete, the garden designer. Um, had actually built the most of, of, of them. Yeah. Now they had been selected to do, um, James Corner had been selected to do Fresh Kills and um, Dillish Video and Renfro had been selected to do Lincoln Center, but they hadn't done those things. Yeah. So that's where um, the city, uh, I think, maybe would have chose someone differently, but they supported, you know, they, they supported us in taking this risk and going with the most uh, unproven yeah. design team. And of course, what they did was magical. 
Um, you know, it was one thing I saw in, in this book that I read that I, that I really like. Uh, Rick uh, Scafidio said that my said my job as an architect is to save the High Line from architecture. Yeah. So was this the kind of thing that attracted you? Yes. To these and, guys. And at the at the competition uh, interview, they started arguing with each other. Yeah. And they started arguing with us <laughs> because in what what I liked is that they didn't. They, they weren't trying to just put one solution. And they, they really wanted, they got the magic, but they also got, you couldn't just rebuild it exactly as it was. Yeah. You know, that you needed, in some ways, I was reading the book The Leopard at the time, and there's this quote, for everything to stay the same, everything has to change. Yeah. And sort of, to keep the magic, everything had to stay, everything had to change and you had to have a different kind of magic and that's what they created. It's very different than what it was like when we used to go up there. Um, but they, they, that's what I think they did. They, they figured out also that the High Line is not an escape from the city. You know, I think uh, sort of the old tradition of parks or Central Park is it's meant, you're meant to be out in the wilderness, yeah. you know, for people that couldn't afford to leave the city, you get to be in the country with just going to a park. And the High Line's really different. It's not an escape from the city. It's, it's part of the city. You can see, smell, hear the city. Yeah. It's this idea of nature integrated um, with the urban environment instead yeah. of trying to pretend you've left it. Yeah, and then you're traveling in this uh, environment where you don't have to be worried that you're going to get killed yeah. by anything. You're totally protected and you, and you can walk there. You, you don't have to. The traffic is not a problem. So it's a, it, it is a really magic place. And I think that uh, I saw also a quote from Liz uh, Diller uh, when she said it was illicit, mysterious, hidden, secret mm -hmm. and dark. And and um, so it, it, it is interesting that on every turn here you sort of avoided a standard solution. Instead, there was always this uh, searching for something that mm -hmm. I find very interesting. And also there's the funny story about Ed Norton. Mm -hmm. So did you know him before? No, no. Um, Edward um, read an article. There was an article in The New Yorker. Um, basically, it wasn't even about us or the Highline. It was about Joel Sternfeld's photographs of the High Line. Like, yeah. um, Adam Gopnik wrote it, and it was more about like Joel taking these photos. And, you know, it, it was, um, I mean, it didn't, you know, the High Line was not likely to happen then, but it caught Edward's attention. He used to live um, right down below it, and he would sit on his roof drinking beers and throwing beer cans on the High Line. Um, and so he was just injured. He called up like three Joshua Davids until he got our Joshua <laughs> David. And, and halfway through the conversation, Joshua was like, are you that Edward Norton? Yeah. And he was like, yes. And, and the interesting thing is father helped start um, uh, Rails to Trails, which was the legal mechanism we used to, to make this into a park eventually. And his grandfather was a, um, a really innovative developer. Yeah. So he had this history and, you know, I think a lot of times celebrities get involved and, I don't know, you, you, you pay for them to come to your event or something or, you know, they show up. But, like, Edward made phone calls, you know, showed up at community <laughs> events, gave money. Again, I, I've never heard of any other celebrity that actually supports a cause and gives money or yeah. rarely, you know. Yeah. Um, and so... And, and, and another interesting, you know, Kevin Bacon, whose father was a famous urban planner. That's incredible. And, uh, you know, he 
he read about it and got yeah. in touch, he and yeah. his wife. So, you know, we're really lucky on, on that front. But I love the story when, when you, it was Ed and you, right? That was, went up there and crawled yes, underneath, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> underneath the fence because yeah. it was blocked off. And then uh, he did the same thing with Brad Pitt uh, yeah. a couple of days later. Yeah, Edward did. He didn't, he didn't invite us on that trip. Oh, no, I, yeah. uh, I thought that was a great yeah, story. He's not, Edward snuck up there on his own, yeah. <laughs> Now, design seems to be a very important thing that has been with you uh, all the way from the beginning. There is a, some discussions in the book about thoughtful design and thoughtful planning. I mean, I go back to one of the first things we did is get a logo because, you know, we didn't have a lot uh, going for us in the beginning. Mm. And so we put a lot of attention into the design of our invites and our website mm -hmm. and um, as sort of a commitment that design was going to be important as we go all the way through. And one of our opponents who, was a, uh, who worked for Giuliani at a, at, a, at a meeting said that all this project is is two guys and a logo. Yeah. And, and he meant it as derogatory, but, you know, the two guys and a logo can do a lot. <laughs> yeah. How do you make decisions around design? Originally, we had a group um, that was a working group made up of people from the community board, people from the city, elected officials, members of our board, mm -hmm. you know, that were working with the design team. And, you know, we had a great um, staff person, a guy named Peter Mullen, who was an architect, who was an architect working for the High Line, but he wasn't designing it. So he was working with the design team to help them. And the other thing we did is we had dozens of community input sessions. Yeah. So we made the designers meet with the community before they started, multiple times during the process, then after, before we started, because the hiring was done in phases at each phase. Yeah. But I think now, you know, I think it's shifted. I think if, if the first 10 years was a lot about design, you know, this, the, the, the the, neck, the 10 years that followed were really about people and how people use it. And mm -hmm. I think that's the, our focus has changed dramatically. And, and it goes back to one of the things, I think one of the biggest lessons to take away from the High Line for other projects, of something we didn't get right, is once you create the value, you can't take, capture it back. Mm -hmm. So we created tremendous value for the city yeah. and for property owners. That is not necessarily benefited from everyone that lives in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, and so now um, the people that are buying property next to the Highline are probably going to lose money. So it's, you, can't, you, you have an opportunity before this project was built to capture more of that value for things like affordable housing. I see. And so I think if we had known how successful it, it um, was going to be, we could have done that. And that's, I think, the lesson that other projects can learn from us. Yeah. Um, because today it's much more than a park because you have, you know, art uh, that we can talk about. You have public programming, you have learning, you have civic engagements and other things. So is that the way that you're trying now to be more inclusive in terms of yeah. bringing in people? Yeah, I think one of the things... Um, just because you have a lot of community input sessions doesn't mean everyone's gonna feel welcome. And mm -hmm. just because it's open and free doesn't mean everyone's gonna feel welcome. And you have to do a lot more, and that's um, something we learned the hard way is when we opened, even though um, our op there's two large low-income um, 
uh, public housing projects in the neighborhood. We even had our offices uh, in one of them for several years when we were starting. We did a lot of community outreach there. But when we opened, very few people were coming mm -hmm. that were our most direct neighbors. Yeah. And when we did a survey there, they said they didn't come because they felt like it wasn't built for them. They didn't see people that looked like them. And they didn't like our programs. <laughs> so we had to rethink our programs. We, when we asked what did they want, they wanted jobs for teens. So we started a teen employment program. They yeah. could help create um, programs uh, on the Highline themselves. Um, and you know, I, I think we've made progress there. The, the Highline is more diverse from when we opened. Mm -hmm. Among New Yorkers, when we opened, it was about 22% people of color. Now it's over 40%. Mm -hmm. We still have a long way to go, yeah. um, but I think where we can have, but but we're not gonna, now that it's done, we're not gonna move the needle very much on affordable housing. Mm -hmm. um, and so where, where we can have the most impact is in helping other projects see that lesson. And we started something called the Highline Network, which is a network of other uh, infrastructure reuse projects all over the country. Yeah. And the goal is not, it's called the Highline Network, but it's not to do it how we've done it. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's like learn from our mistakes, but it's also, more importantly, how do we learn from each other? Because yeah. I think other projects have done a better job of this. There's a project in Washington called the 11th Street Bridge mm -hmm. that started its basis, instead of basing it in design, although they have a great design by mm -hmm. Rim Coolhouse, they started with an equitable development plan mm -hmm. on how you can preserve the housing and culture of the Anacostia neighborhood in Washington, D.C., um, whether this bridge is built or not. Yeah. Um, and so the, in the Beltline, they also, uh, in Atlanta, they have an equitable development plan that has had successes and failures. But, um, you know, I think that's the important thing is how do we learn from each other? This is a new field. These yeah. are, you know, because we're neither fish nor fowl, we're part park, park museum, part botanical garden, part social service organization, part public square. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have more to learn from each other in some ways as, we're, as we continue to develop and change. Yeah. But New York is very special, though, in this. Uh, I think you're, it's mentioned in the book that, that real estate is, uh, drives New York to a very big extent. I yeah. mean, uh, have you thought about what you could have done here? I mean, yeah, I think that's it. Is, 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 is you, you couldn't have done it. Property values, even then, were too expensive. It's not like we could have bought, pro I mean, you could have, but it would have made, you know, it would have been so expensive to buy property adjacent to the Highland. Yeah. But what, the, what we could have done is through public um, action and zoning, yeah. you could have uh, created more affordable housing. I see. In the, in the outset of the negotiation. Yeah, but you, you would have had to do it at the beginning and, yeah. you know, in the defense of the city at the time, no one knew. We, people... Just did not think. No, no one was saying this is going to be a big success at the time. Yeah. And so that's what we've done is we've proven these are can be economic successes. Yeah. And so people can learn from 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 our from our lessons. I see. It's an incredibly complex project. This the Highline to create this. There's a lot of stakeholders. And uh, I think that you did a really great job in mobilizing a lot of different resources on your end. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the local, local community, uh, uh, celebrities, politicians, and, and uh, uh, everybody that you need on your side. And um, I'm thinking about also the fact that you uh, 
you brought these people together and made it work. And I'm thinking uh, that is an incredibly important role to play. And I was thinking maybe this goes back to your own personality, you know, that you are actually a meditation teacher, mm -hmm. a painter, <laughs> entrepreneur. Uh -huh. You understand the creative process. Yeah. You understand many of these different aspects of what it's like to run a project like this. I'm not really an expert uh, in anything. I think one of my biggest talents is, is finding smart people and getting them excited about um, working on something and then mm -hmm. and taking their advice. I think my second biggest talent is false modesty. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, which is... They go um, together. Yeah, well, no, but, you know, it's... and Because it, it, it's, it's being able to... Um, I think that's why sometimes if these projects are led by architects, it's harder because then you just... People don't really often want to just help realize your idea. Mm -hmm. They want to help realize their own idea. <laughs> and this really did. Josh and I didn't have a vision for exactly what it was going to be. And so I think a lot of people were able to feel that they were realizing their own vision, which, which, which they were. Yeah. So what's on your to-do list? I mean, when you come into the office uh, today is Friday, uh, what are the things that you're dealing with? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can tell you. I had a meeting about um, this Highline Network. We have a meeting next week, uh, a gathering of 50 um, industrial reuse projects from all over the country. It's the largest gathering of these kind of projects mm -hmm. together. We're meeting for um, two days at the Ford Foundation, so spend some of my time on that. Um, spend some of my time on fundraising. Yeah. Um, so we have an $18 million budget and we only get a few hundred thousand dollars from the city for our annual operating budget. I see. So we have to raise all of that every year. $18 million, million dollars every year. Yeah. So, you know, and we get it, we get uh, members, people come, come members at four, uh, 40, starting at $40. That's a lot, lot. Um, we do events, mm -hmm. we have a board. Um, foundations. Mm -hmm. So I would say fundraising is a big piece. Um, and, but I think the real thing is, is what interests me is really thinking about the future. I mean, I think, um, you know, we talked about the opportunity for other projects, but I think what our opportunity here is, um, one, continuing to make sure people feel welcome. Yeah. And that I think we, a lot of, we do through our programming mm -hmm. um, for kids, adults, teens, um, the art, um, but then also the neighborhood has changed dramatically yeah. in the past, not just 10 years, but five years, one year. You know, with the opening of Hudson Yards, I think people are getting a feeling of what's happening in this neighborhood. And what has been built now is only a fraction of what's coming. Yeah. Um, you know, Hudson Yards is going to double on the Western Rail Yards. There's Hudson Boulevard. There's Manhattan West. You're going to see... Uh, millions and millions, tens of millions, probably 20 million more square feet of development happening in this neighborhood. And that, that, that has huge repercussions. <laughs> and um, some of them good, but a lot of them not good. Mm. And so, and our role is not going to be to be a leader, but I think what we can do is we can connect people. Yeah. And how do we make sure um, this, this sort of fabric of this neighborhood is not completely ripped apart. I think it is already ripped and ripping because few neighborhoods have gone through this kind of just seismic change so fast yeah. and having such disparity of wealth. You know, you can have a 50 million 
$1,500 apartment in a Zaha Hadid building across the street from public housing where the average income of a family of four is $24,000. Um, and there's very little connection between all of these different communities within one neighborhood. And so I think that's, that's the challenge is one, how do we help like move people mm -hmm. physically around mm -hmm. these neighborhoods mm -hmm. in public space? Because a lot of the spaces that are being created are meant to serve commercial purposes. Yeah. Getting people to go to a mall or helping office buildings or, you know, and so how do you, how do you help the people that live here and, and, and New Yorkers? Um, and then the other thing that's like non-physical is how do you connect um, all of the economic and cultural resources in the neighborhood with each other? And it's not about, <clears throat> you know, uh, giving money or jobs to poor people. It's, you know, Hudson Yards would benefit from more connections with neighbors and, yeah. uh, and so, again, it's not, it's, it's us, us being part of those and I, I think we're gonna have the most impact by partnering with the other cultural and organization and businesses in the neighborhood and so we're literally playing the role of a, of a civic connector both physically and in the non-physical realms. Yeah. And that's a huge challenge because there's been some criticism of the Hudson Yards being for the top 1%. Yeah, no, I think it's, I, I look back, because our 20 year anniversary, I was looking back at these uh, Joel Sternfeld photos and I was thinking, why did I fall in love with the High Line? And, and part of it was these juxtapositions of the hard and the soft, the man-made and the nature and the beautiful and the ugly. And mm -hmm. I think when people looked at these Joel Sternfeld photos, or when they came on the High Line, different people saw beauty and ugly and different things. Yeah. Some people hated the billboards. There were billboards all over the High Line and oh. buildings in the neighborhood. I love the billboards. Yeah. Some people looked at the High Line and saw weeds. Some people saw wildflowers. And I think that's still true today. I think when people, and I, I, I take so many people on tours of the High Line, and people see beauty and and ugliness in completely different things. Yeah. I mean, people's, again, people's reactions to Hudson Yards is true. all over the place. It's true. And I think that's, that's part of the city. Um, that's part of the nature of living in the city. But I think what our role is, is, um, is how, do, how do we as an organization keep evolving to meet the changing needs Mm -hmm. of the people living in these neighborhoods and people living in New York in general. So you have a role to play as some kind of an integrator here. Yeah, uh, I think it's a connector. Yeah, I, connector. I, I like that, I like that yeah. term civic connector and civic yeah. meaning not like a grand civic building but like your own neighborhood, your own city and cities in general. I think we have a lot to learn from what other cities are doing too. Yeah, I understand. Well, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time Great. and uh, for this conversation about the High Line, an incredibly successful uh, project here in New York that we're very proud of, even though, as with everything else, <laughs> there are positives and negatives, yeah. but, but it's overwhelmingly positive, I think. Great. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Wonderful. This is Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. Thank you for listening and be sure to visit www.artinsidersnewyork.com to join the conversation and subscribe to the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of the Art Insiders New York podcast, head over to iTunes, if you're not already there, to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2019.